Welcome to another episode of Inside Out. My name is Jim Bennett, and a lot of you know me. You know my background, you know my history, but you don't know a whole lot about my partner, Ian Wilkes. And before we started this podcast, we spent hours discussing Ian's story, how he joined the church and how he eventually left the church. And it's a story of faith and integrity, and it's fascinating, and I would love to be able to share all of it with you. And I thought that at this point, it might be wise for us to give you the beginnings of that story. Uh, And uh, so that's what we're going to spend this hour doing, is essentially introducing you to Ian Wilkes and helping you understand who he is and where he's coming from. Ian, people listening to you can tell that you're not from the United States, but you don't sound like you're from Canada either. We live in Canada. We've been here for about 16 years, uh, but we're from uh, the UK originally, from the north of UK. My uh, UK friends think I sound uh, like I've got a bit of a Canadian twang. And my Canadian friends say, no, 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 you're definitely British still. So, yeah, we're from, uh, you know, we're from UK, uh, great life. Well, I met you in the UK when we were both serving as missionaries in the Scotland-Edinburgh mission. And my understanding is that a lot of English missionaries feel that when they're called to Scotland, it's a bit like a Utah missionary being called to Idaho, that you're just being called to your own backyard. And they're very disappointed by that. Were you disappointed? When you saw Scotland on your mission letter? I wasn't disappointed. Uh, I know others who were called to the same country were, but I wasn't. There were seven of us in the ward who got our calls at the same time. I think I was only the only one that was called into the British Isles. I'm in the north of England. My mission, where I, uh, in the mission area where I went to the stake in the ward there, uh, connects to the boundary of the mission. So it was only the mission, Scotland mission is only 120 miles away. It's like going from Salt Lake to, I don't know, Provo, maybe uh, Spanish Fork, 100 yeah. miles away, right? So not even Idaho. But for me, uh, going to Scotland was a fantastic uh, experience, and I wasn't disappointed at all. And, and uh, others went California and Philippines, and um, I, I was good. I was good with going to Scotland. Well, I can bear testimony that you were an outstanding missionary. Uh, you. you were a bit of an intimidating missionary, too, uh, to some degree. Uh, but, uh, uh, well, I, I was intimidated by the fact that every time we drove anywhere near a pheasant, you wanted to drive the car over the pheasant in order to be able to bring the roadkill into the car and <laughs> eat it for dinner. That actually happened, did it not? It, it did happen. It wasn't my idea originally, but it, I got the idea from a, a, a missionary who's from uh, uh, from Utah originally, who used to hunt and kill uh, pheasants. And uh, we accidentally killed this uh pheasant on the road and uh my companion uh said look we'll, we can take it home and and, and uh cook it eat it i said okay uh you know what you're doing and uh i, I was excited oh, this is great uh pheasant is is kind of a uh, a great uh you know great dish and uh so we took it home and, and we put the the bird in the back of the car uh, however uh it wasn't quite dead about 10 minutes into the journey um, traveling back to the uh, the flat there, the apartment, the bird came alive somehow and started flying around the car. Uh, I was driving at the time and uh, terrifying experience. This thing was making such a noise, flying around the inside of the car. And um, it was uh, quite a shock. So we had to stop and 
and and and the other people were uh, looking on, and other vehicles were looking on, wondering what the heck's going on. This bird flying around the car, but we stopped, and my companion, who was a, a trained pheasant killer, uh, got the bird and, and and made sure second time around the bird was was dead. So we took it back and oh my skinned gosh. it and cleaned it, and and we ate it, and it tasted absolutely delicious. It was uh, it one of the best meals on the mission I've ever had. Oh, that is that is a great great story. <laughs> Yeah, I, I just remember I was driving with you at one point, and we saw a pheasant, and you you reached out to the wheel, and uh, almost tried to take the wheel, and you finally said, "There's no reason why that pheasant shouldn't be in this car." <laughs> Did I say that? I, okay, so, so I, I, I'll trust your your I, memory. I don't ever recall eating any roadkill when I was a missionary, so <laughs> our experience may have been different in that. But I want to back up before that, uh, yep. before your mission. Um, because you have not been a member of the church your entire life. Is that correct? That is correct, yes. I um, I, I grew up in a working-class coal mining community in the north of England, a place called Castleford, in a, in a, a small suburb of Castleford called Airedale. A very rough neighborhood. It was um, uh, government-funded housing. They call them council estates. Uh, you'll be familiar yeah. with them having served in Scotland. Uh, the north of England is is uh, is no different to Scotland in that sense, and these are brick, uh, government-owned, operated, funded, subsidised um, houses, quite small. Uh, go back to the 1930s, 1940s, 50s, etc. So they've been these buildings have been around for quite a while, and you had a, a lot of um, uh, large families that were. Um, assigned or placed into these communities. These are very large communities. Uh, they're dotted all across the UK, certainly across uh, north of England. And uh, they, certain people, if you like, uh, are uh, encouraged or pushed into those communities uh, through often no choice, and, and, and that's where they, they grow up. So these are fairly rough places. Crime's pretty high. Um the close communities in, 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 in many ways, or they used to be for sure. And uh, that was the kind of uh, environment that I was raised in. Uh, it coal mining, a lot of coal mines at that particular time before Margaret Thatcher shut them down during the, just, you know, after the strike that happened in 84. And you were expected to go down the pit, go down the mine. You know, at school, there was a um, somebody would come in from the National Coal Board and sit down with you and, and, and um, you'd have a conversation about which pit you were going to go down. A lot of my friends went down the, the mine. It was coal mining, collieries uh, everywhere uh, in that uh, that part of the world. So again, working class. It was tough, a tough neighbourhood, um, but great community spirit back then. And so that was the kind of environment that I was, uh, you know, that, that I was born and raised in. Did you expect to spend your entire career and essentially your entire life working in a mine? I, I didn't. No, I was one of the few that wanted to go to college. So I remember sitting down with a, a careers advisor teacher. Her name was Miss Priest. I'll, I will forget her. And I had these aspirations of going to college. I wanted to go to college and I wanted to get a, 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 eventually a degree. Um, and within minutes, uh, Miss Priest quickly dashed those hopes and made it very clear that nobody in my part of the community or certainly in our street uh, and we lived on one of the most difficult, most notorious streets uh, in, in Airedale, um, rough end of the rough part of the community. But she said nobody had gone to college. Um, 
in your family or in, in your neighborhood. Um, and my expectations were unrealistic. I was setting my goals too high. My aspirations weren't, uh, weren't down to worth, et cetera. And she strongly recommended that I meet with the, what they called NCB, National Call Board. These were uh, managers that would come into the school and interview the, the kids and, and, and try to well, put a plan together to get them down the pit, down, you know, when they were 16. You leave school at the age of 16 in the UK. Um, so after that meeting with Miss Priest, I was, I remember walking home from school feeling pretty devastated, uh, pretty uh, upset. I was quite emotional. Um, but something in me uh, didn't accept that. Um, and something in me stirred that, you know, something stirred within me that I felt I could um, do something different with my life, be something different, do something different. Not that there's nothing wrong with going down the pit of the mine, that was fine. But I, I wanted, um, to move more towards private enterprise. And what was interesting, Jim, is at that time, uh, if we know our history, that part of the world, there was a, a big conflict, a big showdown, political showdown between Margaret Thatcher and the unions at that particular time. She was trying to introduce private sector into the uh, the industry, trying to close the, the coal mines, the pits, et cetera. Um, I was, um, uh, the whole community was labor. Uh, they were opposed to conservative Margaret Thatcher's policies, et cetera. Uh, everybody in my entire neighborhood was labor um, and uh, pro-mind, pro-pit and keeping them open and keeping them running. I was one of the few that privately um, thought and felt that the private sector had a, a role to play in in energy, etc. I, I couldn't, I, I learned very quickly as soon as I expressed a, a differing a, a view or opinion in regards to, um, you know, these political um, uh positions and policies that the different governments had uh, in that neighborhood that I was shot down and and actually uh, told directly, ordered uh, directly never to even think like a private uh, enterprise individual that you labor, you'll vote so you, labor. you were a closet Thatcherite? I was. I, I mean, there's certain policies of hers that I don't accept or agree with, but there's certain other things like private enterprise, investment, and very much those some of those principles have stayed my business and investment career uh, going forward. Um, but at, in that neighborhood at uh, that time, and it's still the same now, I believe, uh, they all voted Labour and uh, you, you, you couldn't even express a, a different opinion other than what uh, the Labour uh, Party position was at that time. When I tried to do that around the dinner table, it was, um, I was shot down pretty pretty harshly. Uh, so I kept my views on, on what was going on at that time, um, you know, quite uh, uh, close to myself and and didn't share those views. Um, people that did speak out and speak up, they were uh, met with sometimes physical uh, violence. And any uh, thoughts, uh, opinions that differed from the local uh, regional position was seen as a betrayal. And as you know, in '84, uh, you might not know, uh, but many will. Um, there was a there was a, a year showdown, a physical uh, political showdown between the unions. And Margaret Thatcher, and it was it got very ugly, actually very ugly. Sadly, people lost their lives, and it was a major event. And all that was happening and unfolding uh, right in front of me in that entire neighborhood. In fact, my neighborhood was one of the more militant um, coal mining communities in the entire country. Uh, my family, my brothers were going down the mine, the pit, etc. So me expressing an opinion or a, or a, a aspiration of, of going and to do something different, going to college and, and, and going into business, was frowned upon and absolutely ridiculed and actually laughed at, uh, even by some of the teachers. 
So I, I didn't share many of my views. I didn't share my aspirations uh, about what I wanted to do after I uh, left school. I kept them to myself. Um, people's opinions were so entrenched and fixed on those uh, those um, uh, certain positions. Uh, it just was pointless to express anything other than what was the uh, you know the uh, expected um, position of, of the community at that time. But um, inside, I, I always felt that I could. Um, um, go and do something different with my life, and and uh, and and that's what I did. Um, I made sure that I I was determined enough to uh, not believe um, some of the uh, uh, recommendations or accept some of the recommendations, and uh, determined to uh, go do something different. Um, again, not better. I don't think anything is anything wrong or, or bad going down the pit. I just didn't want to do it. I just wanted to do something different with my life. Your brothers ended up. Going down. They did. Yeah, yes. I, I, David and Paul did go down the pits. I, almost everyone did. I mean, we, we, we were in a triangle of three collars or mines uh, in that area that particular time. These are major and biggest employers. And we were right in the middle of the, you know, you could, there was plenty of jobs. You could go down and, and, and any pit in the area. And so uh, almost everyone, I well, many people went down the pit, went down the mine for a few years or, or even longer. My brothers went, went, went to the mines pit for about 10, 12 years and even after that, they did start closing them down after the Thatcher won the won the uh, the strike there. They didn't close immediately; they were kind of uh, phased out over the next uh, ten years or so. But it was very uh, interesting time politically in the UK. And again, uh, you know, our viewers, audience here can do a quick search and they'll see all the interesting images that came up in 1984 during that strike. Um, and I think the other thing as well, as I think about, as I share this experience with you about how I felt. When I, after I, I met with Miss Priest there, that careers advisor, teacher, uh, um, individual, um, for, for the most part, uh, growing up in that neighborhood, and I wasn't alone by any means, I, I, I always struggled with um, uh, self-confidence, self-esteem, self-worth, uh, often doubting myself, um, not feeling good at certain things, not feeling good enough academically. And, and that position I think was reinforced I believe uh, by the the political landscape that was happening in those communities at that particular time uh, these are communities that are very socialistic in the nature uh, socialism had been entrenched there for a long long time uh, they you had the situations where families over generations were what they called dole dependent uh, dependent on benefits grandfather father uh, son often at some uh, periods of the life some more frequent than others, would be quite happy to, to claim dole or claim benefits um, because they felt that it was owed to them. I, that's not everyone in the community, and I'm not painting the community you know, with that brush um, with everyone by any means, but there were people that I knew that um, were quite happy to claim benefit and not to, not to work. Um, I, I didn't think like that. I didn't feel like that. Although I um, uh, fought against the... Uh, or try to find inner strength against feeling a, a lack of self-confidence, um, self-worth, self-esteem that was very much um, prevalent in my life at that time. Something deep down inside me, and I don't know what it was. It certainly didn't come from my family or from any source that I can recall, but something in me felt I could do something different, something better with my life, that I was worth something, because often I didn't feel, I felt pretty worthless a lot of the time. And again, that the, the the thinking and the mindset in the community was um, was a certain set of thinking, and and uh, if you couldn't think outside of that, 
Um, and you you certainly weren't uh, encouraged to think uh, high or big or or have these these goals or dreams or these visions of other things other than you know a basic job which would keep you in the in the in the neighborhood or the community there for the rest of your life. Any idea of um, going beyond what was in that part of the community there, the neighborhood, was seen as being lofty and unrealistic. And, and um, this person needs to be brought down to earth, you know, with a, a very hard um, uh, crash to, to the ground. Um, and so I fought against that. And um, in the end, I, I managed to get into college. Um, I got into college. That was a, a little bit of a stroke of luck on uh, my part and a little bit of um uh, a little bit of cheating if i may add cheating so you cheated your way yeah, into college i'll explain I, my my uh my grades were good enough but you needed um your uh mother's signature uh to um to get into college a guardian right and so you know when i went back and spoke to my mom about going to college she wasn't happy about that. She frowned upon that. Uh, the college was 10 miles away. Um, I, I, I think she thought, you know, me leaving home at the age of 16 or 17 to go to college was, was too much for me. I, I felt uh, I was ready. And so I um, I forged my mum's signature on the application form. Um, I don't regret that. Uh, that My grades were good enough, so I was okay there. So that was all legit. But I got uh, this application with my mum's signature on, submitted, and I got into college. So uh, yeah, that uh, that's something that I did. I was determined, um, and I didn't feel bad about doing that because I didn't believe what the teachers were saying about me or my mother was thinking about me uh, that I that I could actually do this. I felt I could do this, and I I did. So I don't regret that uh, decision. And I uh, actually it was a it was an important pivotal. Uh, point going forward in terms of my education and, and and going to the college 10 miles away was actually getting me out uh, of that particular community um, I was able to get out of that situation move away and uh, and go to college in a, in a, in a probably 10 15 miles away in a very different environment in many ways very very cool so this is about the same time frame then when the church sort of makes an appearance in your life is that right it is. It is. It, it is at the same time. Um, again, just to uh, highlight that uh, uh, throughout my life in that neighborhood, and I wasn't alone, a lot of kids struggled with self-doubt, self-esteem, personal uh, worth, um, worried about the future, what they're going to do when they leave school. Uh, this wasn't just unique to me. Um but at the time, uh, because I, my family was incredibly dysfunctional, you know, any questions or concerns I had or any feelings or thoughts about, I had about my life or problems I had in my life at the time or doubts, I, I had no one to go to. There's nobody in my family that I could sit down with or talk to. My, my mum was a single parent uh, uh, mum. We had five boys uh, living in a council estate. She didn't work. We lived on government uh, subsidized funding benefits, essentially. And we were raised with very, very little um, growing up. The family was dysfunctional. Uh, we'd lost uh, one of my brothers in a motorbike accident, um, which um, actually caused more divisions. Not, uh, not didn't bring us close together. It, it 
pulled us apart, actually, um, rather than bring us together as a family. So the family dynamics were incredibly dysfunctional. You couldn't share feelings and thoughts. That was seen as a weakness. This, there's an element of this British stiff upper lip um, that came through in the, the, the parental uh, approach, if you like, of my mother. She came from a, uh, you know, a, a, an app the time of the Second World War and, and post-war, very strict, uh, conservative um, in some ways in terms of not sharing feelings or thoughts. It was not done. Uh, that was not that was seen as a weakness. Um, and, and there was no. I wasn't close enough to any friends to, to, to share any feelings or thoughts, or certainly no family members to sh talk about anything, frankly, um, other than just general stuff. And so. At my my life at that particular time, I was uh, quite. I look back, I was quite vulnerable. Um, I had lots of questions, very few answers, little direction, no support or help from anyone uh, in the family. I remember, um, you know, going to school and coming back with homework and needing help, and asked my brothers or uh, you know my mother for help, and and either didn't have they didn't have time or they didn't. Um, they weren't available. They were off doing things themselves, and there was no one really to turn to for, for help with. Um, homework or even talking about anything. Uh, and so, you know, I struggled through all of that um, and felt quite vulnerable. I look back now and I was very uh, lucky for something. I was lost um, on a very, very personal level. I had lots of questions and lots of uh, doubts. And um, and so all these things that were happening uh, in my life at that time were um, me trying to find myself, trying to search for a direction and a purpose and meaning to my life. Uh, there were times, Jim, where things were so bad at home, things were really bad at home that I just didn't think um, I could continue. Um, I won't share too much of that right now, but there were times I just didn't feel I, I had any value uh, whatsoever. And so um, I don't know what kept me going, but this hope uh, that something better was around the corner, that I would find something that would make me feel differently and by the way, I, I felt different and thought different to some of my friends, a lot of my friends. I didn't want to smoke or drink or uh, there was there wasn't a drug scene back then in that part at that part of the world at that time. But I didn't want to be um, do all the things if you like that they were doing at that time. I just didn't want to. I just didn't interest me. I didn't feel uh, the way they did at certain things, and so I was quite um, um, uh, like a uh, an alien in some ways. It was it was a different. Uh, I'd been born at the wrong time at the wrong place because I had different views on on so many things. Um, and so I struggled with all of that. I couldn't reconcile that. I was trapped in this uh, this geography. And only when I was able to uh, go to college was I able to physically uh, um, free myself from that uh, that neighborhood. And at the time when I was applying, uh, if months before I was applying for college, uh, that's when I came into contact with the church. And so this neighborhood, uh, Adel Castleford, was uh, quite notorious for um, nothing, no serious gangs, nothing like that, but more mischievous, more um, small gangs of, of kids like me uh, who would play mischievous uh, acts on, you know, different uh, parts of the community there, etc. You know, the petty theft and petty break-ins and things like that. No extreme violence, nothing like that. And so when we saw the missionaries, and they they, they were always advised not to uh, tract uh, or to uh, go to this particular neighborhood. 
In fact, they were advised to stay away. This is quite a... Your neighborhood was off limits to missionaries? It, it was off limits to missionaries, and for good reason, because myself, uh, and, and I, I regret this, um, and, and that we were part of a... I was part of a small gang, and I was part of a family that had a uh, a little bit of a reputation for being um, um, mischievous and, and, and doing, you know, petty things and, and, and just did you, kind did of... Did your have a name? Uh, we did have a name. We didn't. Um, oh. No, we didn't. It would have been uh, uh, interesting to have a name for sure. But uh, we, we, we didn't. And we all, there were three streets, actually, three um, uh, streets that were quite notorious. Kershaw Avenue, Graham Drive, where I grew up, and Mills Grove. And these were three streets uh, right in the heart of Airedale. And there was a few of us. And uh, whenever we saw the missionaries, uh, myself included, uh, we would play um tricks on them um and actually we would um persecute them but not in a very serious way i remember um one of the missionaries there i think it was um elder southwick um um was um on his bike there and he was we had these are these are uh, council houses red brick they've got uh, fixed fences at the front uh curb street and they've got uh, like in scotland the privet hedges these large privet hedges and so uh, and, and all the streets, many of the streets uh, and properties there had these privet hedges and you could, we used to play hide and seek behind them. You could, as a young kid, you could hide and crouch down and hide in these little uh, hedges. And uh, and what I did, I was uh, dared by my um, my uh, non-serious gang member, fellow, fellow gang members, to uh, push a broom handle through the spokes of uh, Elder Southwick's um, uh, bike which uh, I did as he rode past. Uh, he rode past quite quickly, and I stuck a broom handle through the front wheel, and and that was um, that was quite uh, a, a bloody experience for him. He was very angry, very bad, and chased after after us, and we ran away as kids. I think I was fourteen or fifteen at the time. Um, so whenever we saw the missionaries with their foreign accents, you know, the American accents, and they were dressed in these trench coats, and we would think they were double agents. Um, from America, why are they why are they here and the, the religious cults uh, walking around trying to uh, kidnap people? We heard stories of tunnels, you know, um, that they got these missionaries would kidnap you and actually uh, take you into these tunnels under the Salt Lake Temple, and, and, and I thought yeah. that was ridiculous. And then I learned many years later there are actually tunnels under the Salt Lake Temple because I've been in them uh, to some of the ceilings. Yeah, me too. Uh, uh, you they don't go all the the UK, as far as I know. No, no, but, but the, the rumor was it that they would take you to a place in the UK and there'll be a tunnel, uh, tunnels, and they would take you to America and you find yourself in these dark tunnels going into their uh, strange religion uh, and these buildings. And there's some, there's some, um, in terms of the tunnels, I think that's where that came from. So, you know, these missionaries, uh, you know, were mostly American. They were aliens, as far as we were concerned. Different accents, different culture, spoke funny, and uh, dressed in trench coats. And we would uh, persecute them. Uh, one time, they they had a um, uh, they got a, a, a rental apartment above a a store called the Spa. You probably remember this from Scotland, um, the Spa store that we used to go to as missionaries. And uh, we found out where they lived, and we we threw rocks and, and uh, at the windows, and and um, and we. Uh, uh, put a chain on the on their door outside so they couldn't get out. So we did all kinds of uh, crazy things. Nothing serious, you know, apart from I think the worst we did was pushing the broom handle through the missionary's front wheel. 
we, we didn't do anything beyond that. We were just kids. We didn't want to harm them. We just wanted to be mischievous. And and so we played a lot of pranks on them. And I think we made their life, you know, pretty difficult. They were they were advised though, Jim, not to go to my neighborhood. Um, and so they, I don't know why they, they, uh, so that's they, what you get for breaking mission rules. Is that what you're trying to say? If, 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 you, if break you break mission, mission rules, rules, you got to spoke a broomstick through your, through your bicycle. You do. You do. There are consequences of a breaking mission rules. Absolutely. But we, we, as I say, we, we, we never harmed them too badly physically. It was more mischievous. Um, however, that said, there were, you know, adults at that time that, uh, you know, I was just a kid at the time, but there were people, um, in the area that were much more aggressive and threatening towards the missionaries, including uh, members of my family. So keeping in mind, they shouldn't have been in, in these, this area in the first place. Uh, and I don't blame them for this at all. I, they, they had their own reasons for being there, but when they knocked on our door, and this wasn't unique, by the way, there were a lot of families that felt as strongly as my family did about being in the, so we, we grew up in a Protestant area, right? So you had, um, well, actually a Protestant and Catholic area. Uh, a lot of families, or some families that I was aware of at least, were very proud of their Protestant roots. Um, and I won't go into too much history on that. And others were proud of the Catholic roots. They all got along quite well. When it came down to religion, though, there were, there were people who were proud of the Protestant and people who were proud of the Catholic. And if you were part of the same groups there, then notwithstanding the historical divisions between those uh, two religions, but in our community, you were still um, accepted if you were Catholic or Protestant. But anything outside of that, like Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons, was seen as strange, weird, cultish, and just plain bizarre if you weren't part of the mainstream religion. And you serving in Scotland, you, you'll be aware of that. Um, and, and that was no different in our, in our community. And so any the missions coming around knocking on doors was seen as a... a, a, a at best, a, um, a pest, an unwanted pest, that uh, a strange, bizarre religion that we weren't interested in. And at worst, they, they would be met with, at times, violence. Um, and I remember when they knocked on our door, uh, my mum came to the door. My mum was very uh, colourful, uh, very strong in a political position um, in terms of labour and coal mines, very strong in her... Uh, beliefs on the Protestant religion, then anything outside of that was seen as a betrayal of the family. She was always talking about, you know, how important the church was, even though we never went to church and we never really practiced its principles. But being associated with the Protestant church was part of the, uh, the, 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 the history of the family and the generations. Was, was there a specific church or was this just sort of a generic Protestantism? We were the Church of Generic. England. Church of England. That's right. Sorry. Church of England. Um, you know, up and down the country. You know, there's some, you can Google this. There's some history on this, of course. Uh, King Henry VIII broke off, et cetera, et cetera, formed the church. Uh, Catholic continued, you know, side by side with the Church of England. And, and uh, been a lot of issues, you know, along the way between those two different religions, depending on which part of the world you're talking about. In our community, they got along. I think religion, the religion wasn't, uh, an issue, unless it was outside of those religions. So when the missionaries came to knocking on our door, uh, I think I was 15 at the time. So, you know, I'd seen the missionaries on and off over a number of years um, growing up. You'd see them uh, now and again. Um, 
And then when they came knocking the door, my mum came to the door and basically uh, chewed them out for um, coming. You shouldn't be here. You're a cult. Um, you've got, you know, you talked about these tunnels, kidnap, um, more than one wife. In fact, Jim, quite extraordinary. My mum, and there's a, it's an interesting connection, I think, to this, to other conversations that we might have. My mum seemed to have a, a bit of a grasp somehow, for some reason, on what is now a, a very different narrative that we have with the church. You know, with all the uh, new information that we've learned about the history of the church, the doctrine, the policies, certainly the history about Joseph Smith being a polygamist, et cetera, et cetera, which is something that um, until only a few years ago I, I didn't accept or believe. My mum seemed to have, aside from some of the strange, bizarre rumours she'd heard about tunnels and, and other things, but there were some things that she seemed to have a pretty good knowledge on that she'd read from a library somewhere. She was a great. My mum was a historian. She loved history, in particular religious history. And I think in her research, she'd come across um, different um, religious factions as it related to Church of England, you know, Methodist and um, and beyond. And I think she'd found in a library somewhere some information about Joseph Smith, unbeknown to me at that time. And, and I was only 15 at this time when the missus came around. So the missus knocked on the door. My mum was very um, uh, uh, reactive and very uh, uh, aggressive and warned them, actually, that if they come back to the house again, that, um, you know, they wouldn't be met with... Uh, such kindness um and my mum was absolutely uh, uh brutal when it came to uh, a very feisty lady and and a fighter physical she grew up as a bit of a tomboy and and she would you know she was uh, 12 15 when the war was going on there second world war and she grew up throughout the entire neighborhood you know um and uh, the war sirens going off, and she had a bunker, you know, a, 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 uh, this military bunker at the end of the street there that all went down, you know, uh, uh, bomb shelter essentially. And she grew up in, in that kind of uh, environment, which is something I hope I never experienced, but quite extraordinary. So, a very tough lady, very religious, very focused on her religion, uh, but didn't believe it or practice it. And um, warned very clearly the missionaries at that time not to come round. And what happened, what must have happened is um, is the missionaries will have gone away and will have marked this house um, uh, where we live, 28 Graham's Drive uh, house. Uh, that was the address that we grew up in. And um, should, uh, should have marked it down as don't visit this house again. Um, however, somebody didn't mark that down. Um, someone didn't make a note of this um, as they should have and a few months later they came back other different missionaries and as soon as they knocked on the door and I was inside the house um, at the time looking through the window wondering who the strange accent was at the door uh, my mum called David my oldest brother or second oldest brother who was at left school and was down the pit a tough guy I think it was David or Paul I can't remember um, and my older brothers and they came down and uh, I think they had, they, my mum woke them up. They, they they were on shifts and they were really um, pissed that they had been woken up. And they came down half asleep into this, what sounded like an argument on the door. Mum telling the missionaries to, you know, to, to, to 
go, not to come back, get lost, etc. My mum was very colourful with the language and get us to into them. And uh, the missionary was quite feisty. He was pushing back and uh, and this was a mistake on his part because Paul or David, I can't remember which one, actually um, moved my mum out to the left and just smacked this missionary out cold. Uh, the missionary, kidding. yeah, no, missionary fell back, um, landed in the front yard, out cold for a few seconds until he came to. Oh, it was absolute. Was... And, and, and again, that neighborhood that that's what we did we 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 fought we didn't use knives or guns or nothing like that we had a you know uh people use their fists uh, that's what that's how we uh that's how people fought right and so that's what happened this mission was knocked out cold um and he was laying there quite dazed and his mission companion picked him up and um he came to and he, he just had his head down and he just walked off a little bit of a, a limp and and we never saw uh them again for a for a while and so that was the first uh i was looking through the window um you know wondering what the heck was going on and um you so never that was see experiences like that in the motivational videos that they show you you don't you don't we never got that on those you know those those white tapes that yeah the uh the, the tape oh, you tape recorder uh, you know uh, how to feel the spirit or how to ask questions i think it was or or how yeah. to resolve resolve concerns. There was I've got them in my resolve concerns. Remember the resolve concerns. This was in the eighties there, and and they they I don't know if they existed in the uh, in the eighties when I was joining the church at that time. This is before our missions there, but if they did, they should have listened to the resolve the concerns because that that's right. Have, that well, they should have focused on the effort. What to do when you've been knocked unconscious at a doorstep. They should have done one of those uh, types of experiences on the tape. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And that, the that sound effects have, alone would have been would have been just lovely. Just doing the sound effects would have been fun, wouldn't it? <laughs> I actually had a friend who who wrote some of those tapes. That's a whole other. Fun oh right, story. right. But but, uh, but I I used to listen to those tapes a lot, you know, on the mission. Um, but uh, and then we went to the when we were in MTC there uh, before the missions. There was a lot of so-called training, but it wasn't really for me. It wasn't my training relied on the fact that the Scots culture, Scottish culture, was very similar to the north of England. So for me, it was going back home. You know, going to Scotland was like going to the north of England. The accent was different. There are some differences in culture, absolutely. But the Scots, uh, you know, many of them will tell you they can relate to the Northern England folk because we're we're very we're Northerners, right? We're tough people, and we and that's who we are. And the Scots are the same. And so for me, the you know, I knew what was ahead of me in terms of the the reaction to the church. But my companions in the MTC were not. Uh, they'd come from the states or come from you know parts of Europe, uh, and they were weren't really as prepared as I was. You know, going on. Did you go to Provo for the MTC? No, I went to London. So London had London. an MTC, yeah, MTC, and they came up. They came over from Europe. There were no Americans actually. There were no Americans. They were mostly from Europe and UK, and um, and then yeah. But if you're going abroad, you go to Provo. You go to Provo. So you're going anywhere abroad, you go to Provo and on to wherever your wherever your mission was. But UK, they at that time they kept the uh, the MTC was in in the UK. Well, I'm going to back you up if I can, because I'm I'm yeah. I'm still trying to figure out how you get from knocking a missionary unconscious on your doorstep to becoming a missionary yourself. Absolutely. Okay. So uh, the missionaries uh, and thanks for keeping me on track. 
So the missionaries uh, didn't come by for, a, I don't know, it must have been a full year. Jeez, I uh, wonder why. Yeah, I wonder why. I think they went back to the apartment and said, "You know, let's write this down in the in the in the book here and 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 underline it three times." Not the area record, absolutely. In the area record, that's what it is. Yeah. And so a good, I think I was fifteen, so a good year or many months had passed. And keeping in mind as well, and I can't emphasize enough, uh, family life was was hell, frankly, highly dysfunctional. Um, it, it was just an awful, awful experience, and we, I might get into some of that at some point. Uh, but it was—I was desperate for anything that um, you know I could do that would get me out of that family uh, situation and that community that I was in. It was very, very destructive for me, and, and not just me, many others as well. Anyway, a year on, maybe nine months later, um, there was a—I I should mention, by the way, there was. As an important point, this I, I, I should have mentioned earlier, but there was a member, an active member who lived on our street. Okay, um, she kept herself to herself. She had two daughters, uh, much younger than me, and uh, we knew her. She's quite friendly. We heard she was part of the church, but she didn't talk about it. I think through fear of how the community might react. To be fair to her, but she, we knew she was connected because we also saw. Um, the missionaries would call on them quite frequently. And I learned uh, later that they were members of the church. Anyway, a few months after that doorstep missionary challenge, um, resolving concern challenge. Yes. Um, they, That's uh, a delicate they, way to put it. That's a delicate way to put it for sure, yeah. This sister, lovely lovely lady, um, was uh, having a, what they called, uh, sort of strange at the time, a familial evening. And uh, they'd invited a girl. There's always a girl. It's always, always a girl, girl, yes. Always a girl. They'd invited a girl who I fancied. There was a girl on uh, the next street uh, who had somehow made a connection with the missionaries. Uh, I think actually another part, not on those streets, but fur further away. And this sister who lived down from where we lived had was having this uh, family evening event she invited the missionaries, um, and this girl had invited me. Well, I like this girl uh, very much, and um, and so I went to my mum, uh, my mother, and I said, "Look, there's this thing going on, and is that there's this event happening, and this girl's going." And and I was quite open me with my family. Um, you know, I didn't keep secrets. I think I was the only one that didn't keep secrets. And my mum was very, uh, no, no, you, you cannot, uh, you must not go there. She's a member. My mum had more knowledge about this uh, lady than I did. You know, she's a member of that cult. You know, the missions go there from time to time, et cetera, et cetera. You, you, you shouldn't go there. And, um, and so I, I, I didn't say anything after that. But the girl uh, had invited me. And my, um, uh, the influence that the girl had over me uh, was greater than my mother. It's a, a mathematical thing, Jim. It's, it's a, yeah, funny how that works. A power of the universe. Uh, yeah. it, it had a, a greater pull over me uh, than um, you know than my my mother. Anyway, I I, I said okay, I won't go, but I I, I did, um, and so I, uh, I I I went, and they had this. Uh, the missionaries were there, and by the way, as soon as they saw me. You, 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 when I went into the house, um, we had to introduce ourselves, and I said, "Oh, I'm, you know, Ian, Ian Wilkes," 
And one of them has said, uh, are you part of the Wilkes family? And I said, yeah, yeah. And they went, up on Graham Drive? I said, yeah. And he went, okay, uh, are you okay being here? And I said, sure. Uh, is your family know that you're here? And I went, yeah, of course. And they're okay with that. And I said, yeah, no problem. And so um, they, they looked uncomfortable when they, when they learned I was part of the Wilkes family, this notorious family. Again, and we weren't the worst. Why? I know. And we weren't the worst. We weren't the best, by the way. Um, and so uh, uh, we, so the, we had this um, video. And it wasn't a video, actually. It was. This you talked my... about this on your mission. You, I you, do. They, they showed you, if I'm, if I, I'm going to guess, they showed you the, the, Families are forever. I'll build you a they rainbow. Did. I'll they build did. you a rainbow. That's it. That's the one. Way yeah. up in the sky. Sprinkle down. <laughs> sun drop. Oh, we showed that so many times. I thought it was the yes. dippiest, goofiest video. And I remember talking to you about it on yeah. our missions. And you said, that's why I joined the church. That I did. That I did. Video so what? what difference. So what? Yeah, it was uh, amazing. So what happened? I'm in this home with this, this, this sister uh, who... Uh, didn't know the girls there there's a couple of other members there the missions are there there's some food there so you know food that's great you know went for the food as well you know girl food you don't get much better than that right and they they played this uh families are forever and it wasn't a video it was um film strip. Give my age. it was a film strip and so they put the the projector on the books there and they and, and there was a tape recording and it, every few seconds it go beep and then they would turn the uh yeah, that's yeah. how old i am that's how old i am right and so they would turn that and they showed this video and it got me. And by the time it finished, I was in tears. I I, I, I was like, wow. And, and what happened was um, I had a very strained relationship with my mother. You know, I wanted to have a close relationship with, with mom. Um, tried, desperately uh, failed. I thought it was me. It was never me. Is your, is your mother still with us? She... No, she she passed away. Uh, okay. There's an interesting story what happened there actually. Um, in a, a very in a powerful experience I had with her just before she passed away. I, I had a something happened where I learned that she wasn't going to be with us, and the feelings wouldn't leave me. And I res um, responded to the promptings or feelings which were very strong and very um, consistent and very clear. And thank goodness I did. And, and that's a, that's another quite an extraordinary experience. Um, and so uh, back, I'm, I'm in this house, they're showing this video. Um, you know, the girl has got my interest for the first few minutes and then I get involved in the, uh, in the, uh, the video. Um, and as you know, the, the story that depicts this relationship with his mom and his mom's his mom passes away and, these tears and the sound. I mean, the, you know, we, this this um, technique of of imagery and sound and the tactics and the skill and strategy for associating imagery with sound and emotions, um, which is very very smart way that different organisations do these days, including the church, by the way, not just the church but other organisations. For me, that I I, I took it hook line and sinker. I I watched it. Watched this this video. Was quite emotional. Tried to hold the tears back. Uh, my eyes were watery. Um, I didn't cry or bawl my eyes out, but I was quite emotional. Mistress could see this. Um, the girl uh, could see that she was in tears. 
she looked across and smiled at me and and uh, I remember that and it was quite an emotional experience uh, for me and I think for me what what uh, resonated with me was the you know that's the first time I've been able to have the experience um, with other people who I didn't really know that well any such experiences happened on a very personal level I didn't share my emotions or any tears that I had shared or any emotions that I experienced was all done in private you don't do such things in front of your family or friends, obviously, because that's a weakness. But there I was quite emotional, um, you know, with this uh, these people who I hardly knew. And uh, the missions then moved into um, a discussion. They called it the Holy Ghost Dialogue. Mm. And you might recall that, because I think we had that in Scotland when you and I were serving in Scotland. There was a Holy Ghost Dialogue. It was a, a yellow card that you'd have taped into the mystery discussions before the first discussion there. And it was called the Holy Ghost Dialogue. And essentially that's what they did. That they went into this this conversation about what we'd just seen. Very clever, actually, very smart and, and very genuine. They seemed very the mystery were very genuine, very sincere. That came through very strongly. You could tell that they believed, you know, what uh, you know what they were going to teach me. And they they said that, you know, what they taught us what the video was about. Um the principles of eternal life, eternal family, being with people that love you and accept you, that value you. And, and keeping in mind what I said earlier, Jim, that these words, these feelings really resonated with me. There I am as lost boy, lost guy, um, so much doubt, so much fear, um, low self-esteem. I, I, I can't begin to tell you how worthless I felt at times. Um, and there I was uh, in in a, a group of uh, with a group of people I didn't know talking about things that I'd never discussed or felt before. And they then said to me that really struck me. They said that these feelings that I'd felt and that we'd all felt were in actual fact the Holy Ghost, and uh, and that this was a message from God to um, to come into His fall. That they'd been searching for me and and uh, others who were in that room at that time. I think there were three investigators. That that um, they felt they testified in the name of Jesus Christ, that they had been sent to this part of the world at this time to seek those who were looking for truth and looking for meaning and purpose and looking for value and and uh, looking for uh, acceptance. And I was listening and I'm like, that's me. That's everything they said is me. There wasn't one thing they didn't say that wasn't me. One thing, they, they, one thing that they didn't say that was me. And so uh, it just resonated with me so strongly and I felt for the first time that I'd found some sense of purpose some it, it was a hope um it was a hope that what they were saying was was true and real even though the whole experience I didn't fully understand what was going on at the time it was very emotional but it was just a light if you like at the end of the tunnel uh, and boy did I need that at that time I I can't stress enough how lost I was and so they said, this is the Holy Ghost. The Lord's been looking for you. Uh, you are invited to take up the discussions, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, if you do and you follow these principles, um, your life will be transformed. All the things that you've ever hoped and dreamed for uh, can be yours. You can get yourself out of the situation that you're in, find solutions to your problems, find meaning and purpose and value. And my gosh, that just really, um, really hit me. Um in a very significant way and so uh you know i um we stayed a little bit longer uh we had this discussion 
they asked me about how I felt and I didn't answer. I just was, I think, I think what I was feeling was written all over my face, really. Um, they knew I'd felt something and I did, but I didn't talk uh, about it. I, I listened to what they were saying. I think when they asked me, how did I feel? I said, I felt, I felt really good. I, I mean, that was the best I could do at that time in terms of sharing my emotions. But, um, you know, I, I left that meeting, that gathering, feeling very, very different and actually, uh, something happened there. That I was trying to figure out what happened, trying to explain to myself what on earth just happened just then. And I walked back on like cloud nine, back to that, you know, where I lived up the road there. Um, that's not before I, I um, had a chat with a girl and arranged to uh, to have a date with a girl. By the way, I, oh, I, um, you covered all your yeah. bases. I covered all my bases. Yeah, I ate some food. Was she a member of the church, or was she also? No, no, she was investigating. Yeah, so the missions had found her through uh, through tracking on another street, uh, uh, maybe a few blocks away, um, and she'd come to this this house, um, which is close to where I live. Um, I'm sure more details will come to light as I think about this experience, but it was a very profound experience for me personally. And I left. I walked home. I felt uh, very different. I felt I'd found something. And uh, I was on cloud nine and I walked back and I went through the door of my home and I had forgotten in that moment the risks of um, sharing with my family, um, or at least the warnings. I'd forgotten the warnings of my mother who told me very clearly not to attend this event. And so I went back into the house and she said, oh, where have you, where have you been? And I told her she was absolutely furious, very angry, very colorful language, swearing, uh, struck me um, physically, um, uh, which was common back then. If you got a, a slap across the face or the backside or you got hit on, on your butt with a belt was common. Even at school, by the way, that happened at school quite frequently and was quite normal back then. Um, uh, it's very different now, but back then to be, to get uh, you know, get clipped around the ear roll, as they say, or, or around the face or the butt um, with a belt or a ruler uh, was not uncommon. Um, and so it was a very sharp rebuke physically, verbally from my mom. I had to go to my room, very angry. My mom then stormed off down the road to this uh, this member and banged on the door. My mom was very feisty, just a real fighter, banged on the door and just tore strips off this uh, this member and warned her that uh, significant repercussions would, would happen to her and her family and her property should she try to um, uh, proselytize me into the church. So that happened, you know, I, I went from this feeling of uh, euphoria and, 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 and cloud nine to being brought down to earth very, very uh, bluntly and, and very... Um, uh, directly crashed under the ground there. It reminded actually that, you know, I, I think the contrast between the two experiences was even more difficult because, you know, when you live in an environment, uh, you get you can get numb to it, right? You can become desensitized. Things that aren't normal can become normal, you know, like the physical things back then that everybody thought was normal but weren't really in terms of the physical, um, I, I'm not sure if I put violence to it, but, you know, being smacked or being clipped, which was quite normal back then, and, and the shouting, the arguing, all the dysfunctionality, which happened with lots of farmers at that time in that neighborhood, that you come to accept as being normal, which isn't normal. 
And so going from that uh, very profound experience to back to reality was uh, was quite a shock. Anyway, um, so just moving forward here. So basically, what happened? I, uh, as I thought about the experience on the night time, I couldn't get, I couldn't not think about how this experience made me feel. I thought about it all the time. I couldn't stop thinking about it, and I longed, Jim. I longed to have that feeling of value again, which I didn't have anymore at the house. And, and so I sought it out. I went to knock on the neighbor's door. She said, "Ian, you cannot be here." Um, I've been warned by a family, you can't be here. If you want to learn about the church, you must contact the missionaries directly. Uh, here's where they live. And so that's what I did. I, I was so desperate to feel um, that sense of belonging uh, that I'd felt before um, that I, it, it's the thing that completely consumed me. Um, and so I, I went to the, um, uh, the, uh, the spa, the, the flat above the spa store, uh, the one whose window I'd put through months before perhaps or a year before <laughs> and and i knocked on the door and the missionaries came to the door and they're quite shocked and i said uh, I, I i'd like to learn more i want to learn more and they said well okay um you need to get permission from your mother because i was what, 15 16 at the time and um i said that's not going to happen um she says well um uh, we'll speak to our mission president anyway they got permission to teach me uh, but I couldn't be taught anywhere near where I lived. I, I actually went, I don't know, maybe three miles away, and I was taught uh, in a place called Ferry Fryston, probably two miles away, quite a bit away from where I lived, uh, in this other member's home, and the missions would teach me secretly um, the discussions, and they took me through all the six discussions all the way through. So you're saying you were taught by the missionaries without the permission of your mother? That's correct. Missionaries told you you needed to get permission from your mother, and you said that's not going to happen, and they taught you anyway. They did. Uh, very cool. I mean, or very scandalous, depending on your point of view there. I mean, and, and what that reminds me, Jim, you know, in life, right, you got all these rules and regulations and everything. You know, in my line of work, I do a lot of regulations and rules, and they're all very, very important. But some things in life uh, need to be bent you know, if we follow every rule strictly, some of the, uh, you know, more draconian rules, if you like, um, uh, and others will disagree with this, I'm sure, that's fine. But uh, sometimes uh, certain rules, are, you know, need stretching or bending. And I think in this case, um, and by the way, it's no exaggeration to say that the church, uh, the missionaries, uh, the gospel actually saved me. Um there were times I just didn't feel I could continue with my own life. There were there was three moments where I was right at the end of my tether, right at the end. And one particular moment that it was so um, desperate, uh, so unhappy, so sad. Um, and then the missionaries doing what they did. And they, they, they loved me. They cared for me. They were genuine. They were sincere. There's no exaggeration to say they saved me um, from what could have been a very, very awful state. Um, there was very, very dark moments very black about that moments which no one should go through especially a young a young kid uh, should go through that right you know question whether they you know want to continue living anymore uh, in, in, in a very serious way on one particular occasion so being taught without permission um you know is actually which saved me is a, a rule that i i would gladly have them break again frankly 
Well, there's a great deal more to this story, but one of the rules I don't want to break is trying to keep these to around an hour. So this is part one, and we will uh, end up releasing further parts in further episodes. Until then, we will see you next time on Inside Out.